Hello and welcome back to the Comic Lyra podcast, though we're not recording the intro for the second time at all. I'm your host, soon to be known as Comic Stan, and with me as always is my bizarre co-host, it's Jamie. Alright, sunshine. And failed to mention, because stuff is loading up my laptop when it shouldn't be, uh, the podcast has deep dives into the best of comic books, graphic novels, mangas, and penny dreadfuls. We are all out of sorts today. Seamless, mate. Beautiful. Best yeah. one you've done. No, yeah, no one will. Let, no one will ever know. I might chop it and change it and put it in the right order in editing, or I won't, or I'll just leave it. No, because because if you do that, this whole bit's ruined, and this is the, yeah. the magic of the podcast. And we do like to be brutally honest with our depiction of just how we are on the podcast. So mistakes and all, because if if I did edit it at all, there would be a lot less. You could probably make a supercut. And some, maybe some psychotic fan in the future, <laughs> hopefully, fingers crossed, will be some super cut of me going, and uh, it's, it's like, uh, oh, what's that word? Oh, it's just, uh, there's going to be an hour super cut of me after a few years of that. That'll be one for our Indonesian listeners. Yeah. And for you, it'll be the massive gap. It'd be gaps between you <laughs> go, uh, and anyway, but you, but you do it right in the seamlessly. If I took out the ums, I could make you sound a lot more coherent. But not in a way, not coherent. We don't want that. But I'm like, not coherent. I could make it sound like you had a faster, what's the word, like uh, consciousness to speech, like, yes. you know what I mean? Flow of consciousness or whatever. But everyone, you take an um, and then you continue sounding very eloquent. <laughs> but it's just the um. So it's a necessary um. Yeah. It's like your brain just needs like that a second. To buffer. Yeah, just to buffer a bit. It'd be like, right. <laughs> like YouTube in 2005. <laughs> yeah, but it's like a thesaurus in your brain. It's just like, right, give it a minute. Right, and we're back. And now. we're back, yeah. With the bit the with the flow. <laughs> and speaking of being back, the the boys are back. Are to, they back in town. Well, the boys are back in town to do the boys. And I don't know if that might be the title of the episode or not. Like in, it needs to be. In capitals, the boys are back on the boys, or something like that. I mean, we're gonna have to workshop that one a yeah. little bit. The boys on the boys. Well, I mean, there has there was a lot of boy on boy in this comic. I'm going to be honest so, with you. Some boy on boy. <laughs> some maybe maybe better say man or man. <laughs> that might be a, a better way to put it. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. We tried to make a double meaning out of the out of the name of the the title and ended up going down a road that probably wasn't the best road to go down on, especially on a podcast. We would like for that to be the road less travelled. Yes, ideally in the world, mm. um, and that's what we stand for. Absolutely we, more. Man on man in comics. <laughs> I'm I'm here for it. And by which I mean good representations of LGBTQ relationships in comics. Yeah, which this did not have. Not at all, <laughs> no. And we will we will get into it, obviously. Um but yeah, this is a comic that I have read before. I read it quite a few years ago. Um and it originally came out in 2006. Uh and it really shows that it came out almost 20 years ago yeah i mean we have to trigger warning sexual assault in the workplace yep sexual assault gratuitous violence yep racist language a hundred percent um and just general bad british accents yes <laughs> i would i would describe this as quintessential garth ennis right, right okay and he is known for being somewhat of a shock factor writer comic writer if that makes sense and this uh, would have been pretty shocking in 1995 i mean it was i think it was pretty shocking in 2006 as well to be fair is that when it came out 2006? yes 2006 okay. it, it was shocking 
it would probably be shocking in most years beforehand and up to 2006 and probably yeah. a little bit after as well yeah but what's interesting is for me as i said i read it quite a few years ago um and haven't gone back to it Pages, except mm. they did a, a, a kind of a sequel prequelish kind of thing just a couple of years ago called dear becky which was very interesting but i won't bother getting oh, into becky. it here yeah oh, but, oh god but, but oh, um no. <laughs> but i said i haven't touched gone back to the comic tour but then i watched the tv show has been out for a couple of years and now rereading this old comic the tv show has done a very good job in modernizing this so obviously I'm, you have not read any of the comic before this or no. seen any of the tv show have you went into it completely blind i heard mm. good things about the tv show it so, was on amazon wasn't it yes and what's especially good now is it just says the tv show did a very good job of modernizing it so they they managed to keep in and i'm seeing this now especially rereading the comic they did a really good job of keeping the same themes but not being so overtly misogynistic and racist and it's somewhat disgusting at parts about Did it. Did they post Twitter it? A little bit, yeah. But the, <laughs> and then, but they still kept some shock. That's the thing. Mm. But the shock was more like it was just updated. Like it's hard to describe. Like it was less controversial shock and more like, oh my god, I can't believe they did this. Not, oh no, they shouldn't have done that. Do you know what I mean? The general sense that I got from the tiny amount of research I did on this one, um, this this isn't going to be a very well researched episode on my part. From the small amount of research I did about the comic, other than, you know, just reading what I read of it, yeah, the general sense I got is that in 2023, audiences much prefer the TV show over the comic book. Yeah, 100%. And that it's, it's, held, it's held more favourably. And I'm going to be honest with you, I quite liked it. It's got a lot in it to like. Like, yeah. in me going back to it, I didn't, it didn't ruin everything. It didn't necessarily ruin anything for me that I liked from it before, but coming back to now with kind of older sensibilities, I was definitely a lot more put off by some of the parts that just didn't register with me as much originally yes i mean i liked billy i feel like billy billy's perception on things is kind of the way i feel when i read superhero comics <laughs> and that is a big part why this comic came out yeah there was a bit of superhero fatigue i think within comics at that time which obviously hasn't gone anywhere but what this did start was the genre not start but it definitely was one of the bigger earlier adopters of the subverted superhero genre yeah so this led way to things like invincible as well which is another uh tv show on right now which yeah. subverts the superhero uh, trope and everything and it led to a whole bunch of like marvel and dc doing like what if our superheroes were evil like let's let's get in on this kind of thing but they the boys i think did it well before they did but a real sanitized version thereof i imagine oh nowhere near as violent as this obviously. and i got watchman vibes from it yeah, I suppose Watchmen was the original subversion, wasn't it? I mean, classically, Alan Moore was first on the yeah, ahead of, of the curve when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah, Alan Moore did Watchmen so that Garth Ennis could do this, I feel. Because, you know, there, there's these heavy themes of, I think, Watchmen was the first time that we not only saw a grittier superhero, because we'd seen that in Batman. Mm. And, we, you know, there'd been Batman runs in the 80s where he was a bit grittier. But what we saw in the comedian was a superhero who was just an outright terrible human being who did awful things. Yep. And that is absolutely what we're being presented well, with here, isn't it? What I thought was, when you just saying that, I think Alan Moore did watch him as like, what if superheroes were actually real people? And it's a, like a variety of like what people are like. The boys was like, what if the boys, what if the superheroes were real people, but also all people are terrible? Like, yeah, well, I think that's, it, that's it? where the boys goes. Because watch when you have a variety of like, some are better than others and, you know, morality 
questions. More nihilistic, isn't it? This is way more nihilistic. And that is Garth Ennis to a T, to be fair. And just to get out of the way as well, written by Garth Ennis and also co-created, designed and illustrated by Derek Robertson. So, which I think is important because there's a very unique kind of art style to this as well. Yeah. And again, the art hasn't aged that well, I don't think. I think it comes from an era of comic books where the art didn't need to be as good as it does now. Yeah, and it do- it seems actually even a bit dated for 2006, to be fair. Yes, no, which is why I thought it was from the 90s. Yeah, and fair, yeah, absolutely fair enough. Uh, it was the distinct lack of mobile phones, mm. which, you know, in 2006, they would have had clamshells, there would have been phones kicking about. Yeah. Um, it was the distinct lack of phones, and yeah, and just that kind of slightly darker, but still quite bold colouring work. Mm. And also, the way it was laid out, was really reminiscent of older comics. Yeah, I was going to say the panel layout was a bit uh, basic and a yes. bit rigid. Yeah. And I think I think that's just one of those things. I think this is probably one of the weaker panel layouts we've seen. Yeah, I think so. But yeah. also, maybe that was the case 2006, like around that time. And this is me speaking completely reckless speculation on my part. I reckon by that point, the only ones that did kind of really interesting panel layout was like maybe... For example, like Sandman, Neil Gaiman, like those kind of ones who were doing like interesting things, whereas... Artier comics. Yes. And whereas these ones were a bit more like, let's just tell the story. Like, let's not buff around too much. And this is so driven by story and concept, isn't it? Yes. Like, you can tell he had a really strong concept going in. Oh, yeah. It was definitely planned, like, for me to be. So Garth Ennis is American, right? No, he is Irish. And I I knew he wasn't American, but I didn't know he was Irish until I looked up. He's Irish. That's so weird. I tell you what, let me verify that just in case, because you know when you get that niggling feeling, you're like, oh, have I got Ennis that right? doesn't feel like a particularly Irish name to me. Northern Irish American. So uh, we're both right. No, no, because <laughs> Northern Irish American means, means that he's an American. Well, we don't know how who much. He thinks is. he's fucking Irish because his great great granddad once saw Dublin from a boat that he was on to England. I feel like I'm going to have to double check all yeah, this yeah, before yeah. we make any grand... Like, where was he born and where did he go to fucking school? Exactly. <laughs> so let me let me take a cut-out minute just to read his Wikipedia and it'll seem like nothing on the edit. Because there, there is a key moment that tells me he was not British. So apparently he did live in Northern Ireland for, qu- for quite a bit of his early life. So I would say he's not... I know what you mean, the American who has like the one sixteenth Irish. Yeah, he's like, I'm yeah. Irish American. Like he was like Northern Irish fully, and I think just now ha- now is American citizenship. That's super interesting, and I'm going to get onto this later because there is some interesting fudging of British accents mm. happening here. Um, and again, one of the things that I really liked about Billy is that when his act, when his dialect is on, it is on. Yeah, and there are some really great moments where he says some quite distinctly kind of South London stuff. Do you know what I mean? Co- sounds a bit like Cockney, Michael Caine. I think, yeah. Yeah, a little bit South London. They, they do say he sounds like Michael Caine. It, she was only 16. <laughs> I have no idea if he's actually said that or not. It's in a film. Okay. <laughs> That's a quote from his a role that he was paid to perform. And when so he gets loud, he gets... Have you seen, have you seen the trip? With, with um Steve Coogan and Rob Bright. Yeah, we've talked about it before, yeah. Where, Probably where, not on here. Where where they where they go off script and they just do a Michael Caine impression back yeah. and forth and it's just majestic. And telly. it's just always just my name, Michael Caine. But my. it's where it's where the she's only sixteen came from. Okay. Like it's one of the it's, it's one of his lines that they quote back and forth to each other. Of all the lines to pick <laughs> by an actor. <laughs> Which one do you want to practice <laughs> practice 
pronunciation of an accent with. Well, I'm going to go with the most problematic that could be clipped and isolated by us. (laughs) Of course. And speaking of story, which you did mention a minute ago, uh, we are just covering the first six issues. So it's the first volume of The Boys, which I think like easily got a a sense of this entire... As someone who's read it all, this encapsulated everything at the beginning. I did. I did read a synopsis. Oh, is that what you're going to provide to us now when I ask you what the story is of the of the boys? No, I read a synopsis of the rest, so, okay. I, so I know what happens in the rest okay. of the issues. Fair enough. Well, I familiarised myself with the whole run, but only actually read six issues for okay. myself. Well, if you were going to recommend... Well, no, not if you're going to recommend. If someone wanted to know what the story of the first six issue is, or just generally the story of the boys, what would you say? So, imagine Danny Dyer decides to create a normie superhero hunting troupe and he hires spud from train spotting only he yep. looks more like Shorter. he looks more like simon Pegg. yep <laughs> he does he does yeah. just he, like simon Pegg. everyone's been saying this is 2006 so, so yeah. spud from train spotting who looks like simon Pegg, has just had his girlfriend brutally murdered by accident by a superhero they go to new york and they start a superhero fighting squad also the superheroes are all perverts you pretty much nailed it, and as as this bit goes, I will add the extra little details that I think are important. <laughs> no, because mine was funnier. <laughs> no, that's why we get that's why we get yours first. <laughs> All I'm going to add is I think what's what's interesting about this is that it's they are a group who have have existed previously. This new incarnation is with the new character Huey, and we yeah. see it all through his eyes. So we're seeing everything new. He's the new character who gets everything explained. Yeah. Um, but what's important to me is as well is that they work for the CIA. Yeah. So that adds this whole thing of like the government trying to keep the superheroes in check. Yeah. And obviously the running theme is that essentially if you need normal people, essentially normal people, we'll get into that in a minute, who can look, who can keep an eye on the superheroes and keep them in line, they have to be the absolute worst, most psychopathic human beings who aren't already superheroes. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I quite like them. Like, I, I, I like the characters. <laughs> I I identify with Billy quite strongly, actually. <laughs> so here's the thing with me with Billy. I think I was where you were in 2006 when I first read it. And I and he is meant to be that way. He is meant to be the coolest, calmest, most competent, sorry for the alliteration, character that, you know, like he has to be that level to be someone who could be entrusted with yeah. taking an iron fist to the, you know, to the superheroes. Yeah. But in rereading it now... I feel like he's I feel like he's overly portrayed to be cool, but also now I'm getting the sense that he's just as bad as the superheroes in a lot of ways. Oh no, he's an awful human being. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the the relationship that he has with the head of the CIA is an toxic in- as fuck. Is an indication that he is every bit the fucking deviant that the superheroes are. So for for anybody who's not read it. On his first meeting with the new head of the CIA. Who was somebody he previously worked with. Yeah, previously worked with but didn't work under. Mm. Um, she has a flashback to their, to a proper filthy tryst that they had in a hotel room. Was it a flashback or was that... It was a flashback because they were in different clothes with different I scenery. I... And then you see him zipping his trousers up and they've just done it in the office. Okay, I didn't notice that at all. Yeah. I just assumed it was... Because it played to me, it was just like that happened and then this happened like it was just the next chronological like event happened no i I mean they didn't go into black and white but it struck me that it was a different room unless 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 they just fluffed up the um scenery 
Let me have a check just in case. But you were you were making a point anyway. Yeah, and so we then later on in this in this volume, we cut to a scene in a hotel room where she's flown in from DC and they have sex and he um sodomizes her against her will. I didn't I don't know if I missed that to be So fair. he's behind her and you kind of see him angling angling himself up a little bit and she's like, "Oh, don't do that." And he's like, "Oh no, you fucking love it." Um, and so, it, yeah, the, it's very strongly implied that he they're having sex and then he sodomizes her instead of just having vaginal sex with her. Right. And then... Definitely going to put a uh, content warning on this episode. Well, I mean, you yeah, have we, to. We have to, yeah. Yeah, no, there's... It, just, just look at it again. It's really strongly implied that he they're having, you know, doggy-style sex and then he forcibly sodomizes her, which is pretty brutal, and then he just orders room service. <laughs> so I, 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 this, here's why I missed it. Um, unfortunately, looking at the panel again, I'm also seeing the dog is watching from the corner, which is especially disconcerting. Um, it looked to me like he was spanking her on the ass at that moment. And that's, and to, that's happening near her speech. Well, it's going, ow, you piece of shit. How fucking dare you? I run the CIA. So I think I missed. I read it as he was spanking her on the ass, and she and he and he was like, "You love it, you slag." Oh, well, I thought it stuck it in the wrong hole. I mean, I can see now looking at it. I can see how you would misconstrue that because there's there's the odd. This this might be the oddest. <laughs> d- the oddest. N- how to explain? It. This might be the oddest notice of a detail of art in a comic that we might ever do but there's and it doesn't really do this much in this comic but there's like a little bit of like impact coloring at their pelvises let's say so uh, maybe that unconsciously might have like registered but obviously i registered a different way i think without much more context i think without it Without it addressing it directly, yeah, I would I would lean on my interpretation. Uh, but yeah, I feel, I just yeah, but I can easily see how I it could go what, the other though, way. One thing we respect Billy for, he did wear a, he did strap up. I mean, at the very least, he did. Like, he, no, he had a Johnny on. You see yeah. him take it off and bid it. He doesn't. He doesn't put a knot in it though. Fucking heathen. <laughs> <laughs> That's disgusting. That is one spunky fucking waste paper basket. Well, they're in a hotel, so even. So- that just means it's somebody else's problem. I think that's how the general public treats hotels. Imagine... It's someone else's problem. Whether you're having sex or you're just getting fast food all over the bed, it's someone else's right, problem. Right. We need to we need to make we need to take a poll of the audience now. Um if you're having sex in a hotel, do you tie the condom off before you dispose of it or not? Because I think that is just grotesque. I, I absolutely see your point. Like I, that is scummy behaviour. Yeah, I just think again, this comes to like <laughs> Can't this, believe this is the conversation we're having today. This this comes down to, as I said, the nihilism of like yeah. pe- of society in general. I don't think people give a shit when it comes to hotel rooms. Maybe in their own home, fair enough. But I think hotel rooms, people are like fuck it, like throw a fucking burger on the ceiling and see how long it sticks. <laughs> like it's the helps problem. Like I think that's unfortunately how people treat hotel rooms. Or the but, head of the CIA. But, yeah. <laughs> but as as the running uh, slogan slogan of the podcast. Back to the comic. Back to, well, I mean, we're on the comic. Yeah. yeah. I, I, unfortunately, <laughs> this is somehow still related to the comic. Um, but yeah, it's it's the relationship. Like, that's basically your first introduction of Billy, essentially. Like, you see him a bit beforehand, but this is like the first, like, show. Not this hotel specifically, no. but him, him having sex with the CIA director and it just being like, 
them speaking horribly to each other. She obviously hates him. And yeah. this feeds into, I think, what is probably my biggest problem with the entire run. Oh, yeah. Is inherently is very misogynistic. Like, I don't think you can get past that. The, the debate, I think, is how much of it is intentional to the story. Well, yeah, I mean... And how, how much, much is unintentional by the writer. Yeah, I mean, how much of it is Garth Ennis trying to portray the fact that these are bad people? Exactly. What's really interesting is that when I read Billy, I read him as being a lot less misogynistic than the heroes. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think that that's a running theme of all the different areas, violence and everything else. Billy is only bad by normal everyday standards yeah. but then as soon as you compare him to the superheroes who are essentially evil he's then by contrast not so bad and that well i suppose the thing is the superheroes are in effect gods that's I mean, the, the thing the, isn't it the seven are especially because they, they are the pseudo justice league in yeah. this and then you've got the lower ones who are just kind of super bad people who are heroes but you know the seven are like the 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 meeting in the the room at the top of a skyscraper so they're literally elevated above everyone else and in the dc universe justice league literally have a watchtower in space yeah so it's that similar kind of thing and gods often appear atop a mountain just anything that elevates them above people really isn't it yeah literally it's a it's a it's a physical and metaphorical elevation yeah um and and yeah and so it's it's interesting with billy because there is this there's this sensitivity that underlies it all and there is this reasonableness to him. Mm. Like, his motives are very reasonable. And the way he treats Huey, even though it's quite coercive. Mm. Um, Definitely a, um, like a cult leader recruiting someone kind of relationship, isn't it? Making them feel good about themselves. And Well, it's, it's the fact that he's so dismissive. I mean, and again, I don't think this is a conversation that we really would have had the language for in 2006. But he's really dismissive of Huey's boundaries. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And then so, and then apologizes for it later. Uh, but exactly. But once around, the that's... damage is done, and mm. it's sort of like, oh, here's two grand. Come to New York. Oh, you waited in that awful immigration queue. Here's an American passport. It's like, oh, I'm an American citizen now, am I? Yeah. And then it's, I want to go home, and he's like, yeah, but give it, give a few days. Like yeah. you're in now. And then he shoots him up with that chemical that compound turns Compound V, yeah. Compound V against his will and then kind of apologises and then Huey just murders somebody in the street because he doesn't know his own strength. Yeah, yeah. And to be fair, I like stuff like that because that's like an accurate depiction of like people having super strength, especially people who are untrained. And like we see that first, obviously, uh, major display of it with Huey having compound V. But then you think about these superheroes, like, yeah, they might have had super strength for longer, but they're still as untrained. It's so it, you've got to imagine that's probably them. The superheroes have done that exact thing, but to, to pedestrian people well, far more. Right? And, and we see it right at the start. We see that the, the speedster mm. just goes straight through Huey's fiance. So I, so common misconception, and this is really interesting. This is a bit of a Mandela effect with mm. this, I think. So in the TV show, A-Train goes literally through his girlfriend yeah. and he's holding the, the hands afterwards, like in the comic. And I thought, so I had the Mandela effect thing. I was like, yeah, that's what happened in the comic. Turns out, in rereading it, a villain is thrown oh, through her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, I was surprised when I reread it going... Oh, I thought A Train went through her, and and yeah. I and I read that in the TV show Huey's relationship with his girlfriend was kind of falling apart. No, no, just as just as strong as in this. Yeah, it was like oh. perfect. You know, like 
ideal like uh picturesque you know um, oh apparently they changed version. it that's what that's what i read i've not seen it i don't know yeah but... no so in the t- i don't know where that's from but tv show yeah it's all perfect they're like you know maybe think about marriage and that kind of stuff and or at least that vibe and then obviously that makes it more tragic when then suddenly she's a, a mist of blood and then a train is just gone because the, the the strong implication is that they've only known each other a couple months and it's the first time that either of them have said i love you yeah, and I think that's like that adds even more bittersweet because like they didn't ha- they, even though they were very very in love they they, didn't... they they only had so much time together exactly which yeah. makes it even more tragic and it's 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 not just her that he lost it's the possibility mm. that came with her but this and that's kind of tragic yeah this kind of feeds in as I was saying to the in rereading seeing more of the general misogyny of the of it because on the one hand again like you said. You've got characters, you've got bad characters treating women badly. So showing showing they yeah. are bad people. But in terms of the writing, what you've got here is a lot of fridging, mm. which is the, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know, the comic book expression started when a Green Lantern title with um, Carl Rayner, I think his name, Carl Rayner, oh, something like that. He's one of the other Lanterns. But basically they introduced a love interest for like two issues. And then by the third... Um, bad guys had chopped up and put her in a fridge as a yeah. as a motivation for the male main character. I mean, this is this is something that is just rife in fiction: is women not being fully fledged characters, but being character motivations for men. Yeah, but I think this goes even the extreme. You've got two of those happening with the two main characters. So you've got yeah. one for Huey, and then retroactively one for Billy. Yeah, absolutely. And the my the other bit that made me lean into this being written misogynistically was is the depiction of the female so she is literally the, the token female. female of the boys group and i like the i like the fact of having like this the woman being the strongest and yeah, the, yeah. the most violent out of them like there's a bit of a um flipping of the genre there mm. but also she's the only one that doesn't talk yeah and i and like we we had this before you've mentioned the bechdel test sometimes when yeah. we're looking at comics and like we looked at human target you brought it up and i i said well to be fair it technically doesn't pass but i feel like it didn't count because you had one main character who was in everything it was following history only this i feel like violates the bechdel test and the, and this is the thing from what i've read of the synopsis of later issues she's the only one of the boys who never really drives the plot along exactly she's yeah. never super involved in anything plot related it always seems to come down to billy and huey yeah doesn't it yeah and she to be for an, another good thing about the tv show she's a lot more fleshed out as a character there I, well that makes sense because it was mm. made in what 2000 exactly yeah no they, 2020 sorry I mean. 2020 yeah and they had to obviously make her like they had to do something different because they couldn't just repeat the was same. Was it twenty twenty or was it pre pandemic? I think it originally may have started. I think it started pre pandemic, pre pandemic, so maybe twenty nineteen. Yeah, but um, but more more recently, certainly. Like, yeah, post me too. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And they give they start her off not speaking, but they use it as like a a it's a device just to show how much trauma she's just been through. Yeah, and then she slowly works back from that, and she starts slowly starts talking more. And what I do love in the original comic, like past these issues, is the relationship between her and Frenchie. Like they right. have a really nice, violent, albeit, but like um, brother, sister, like older brother, younger sister kind of relationship. And he's the one who's like trying to deter her from the path of violence, even though he's like, oh, yeah, you, you can be violent. Like, <laughs> I saw, I saw, but don't be um, a hired gun for someone else just yeah. just to be violent for the sake Do of your violence. own violence. Yeah, exactly. He's like, live your own life kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and and he's kind of, that's coming from someone who he himself is like, especially a violent person. But he's like, but I do that for me. 
Like, and he's trying to kind of bring her to that. To add some context here, the first time we meet Frenchie, he bites somebody's neck out. Oh yeah, he's uh, Frenchie's he one of my favorite absolute characters. Absolutely, yeah. fucking animal. <laughs> he's he's great. There's a bit way later on where you see the backstories of the other three. So yeah, it's yeah, of yeah. MM uh, Frenchie and the female. Yeah, and Frenchie, his backstory is so ridiculously over the top, stereotypical French that it's implied. <laughs> That he might not even be French. <laughs> that he might be making it all up. There's one point where he literally has a a bicycle baguette jousting competition with someone in his hometown. Which apparently is a thing, but I still feel like <laughs> Fuck off. Apparently it is. <laughs> that's no, that's propaganda invented by the British during the Napoleonic Wars to make them look silly, surely surely I, I, I heard i read somewhere apparently it might be a thing whether whether <laughs> it actually started first or it was inspired by the propaganda who knows i love i love sorry what you just said i love the idea that the french would have seen some british propaganda and gone you know what lads that actually looks like quite a lot of fun you'll be funny if we actually did that <laughs> but we had fun with it <laughs> we're doing it ironically we're doing it ironically but there'll be wine and cheese afterwards lads is there has there ever been a french event that wasn't followed by wine and cheese only the ones that are wine and cheese centric but even then you have a little bit of brie when you get home don't you yeah it's like uh, us British being like, well, if we're going out drinking, we should probably do some drinking before we go drinking. And it's like, if we're going to go eat cheese, we should probably have some cheese ready for when we get back. Yeah, just in case we don't have enough cheese. Or the cheese that's at the location is not as good as we thought it would be. Then you need some good cheese to come back to. Yeah, You break out the stash. Do you know what? The more I take the piss out of the French, the more I realise it's because I'm jealous of them. Yeah, we we (laughs) we've established on here, we are not francophobic on this this podcast. (laughs) We take the piss out of the french because they are essentially our next door neighbors and we have the relationship where you can take the piss ball so we love them yeah i mean they're the only one of our neighbors that we didn't successfully colonize and good on them for it <laughs> when you think about it mm. we had a fucking good pop as well there's we re- whole- we, res- we begrudgingly respect them yeah there's a whole chunk of france that's literally called Brittany, and yes. a whole chunk of our language is literally french we both had a good go and if you do go to France at all, just stay out of Paris and you'll be fine. And the only reason I say that is because Paris, I mean, I think it was you who told me this. There's a Paris syndrome, is it? Where people are d- distraught by the reality of Paris compared it's to how it's portrayed. specific to Japanese people. Okay, that's interesting. So the, the propaganda about Paris or the kind of cultural perception of Paris amongst Japanese people is so strong that, yeah, they call it Paris syndrome, where Japanese people will just become really frenzied or pass out or just become inconsolable because it's such a long way to go and in japan there is a, there are certain expectations like things run well and things are nice and clean oh then you came to europe yeah unless well, you're in germany <laughs> and then, uh, and then you work. went to western europe like yeah. <laughs> and then you went to a particularly laissez-faire part of western europe to the extent that the only word we have for laissez-faire, for caring that little, is a French word that we nicked. <laughs> like, we can't even comprehend of somebody who cares that little about anything that we had to borrow their word for We it. cared so little that we couldn't be asked <laughs> to come up with our own word for it. Yeah, and they just go apeshit, apparently. Well, back to the comic. <laughs> <laughs> but that was interesting. That was genuinely interesting. Bit. Tidbit of information. 
And you can't say you don't learn when you listen to this podcast. Fucking A, that's what I'm here for, mm. to educate. I did think I I did think about how you would find this comic at the very beginning, because I thought on the one hand, immediate uh unnecessary panel of graphic violence, someone yeah. getting their head like caved in on the road, on the floor, whatever. And then immediately after that, introduction of Billy Butcher, and he looks at the supers in the sky, and it's something along the lines of like, I'll have you, you cunt. And I thought, he said, it's good go either way for I'm Jamie. I'm going to fucking kill those cunts. Yes. <laughs> and do you know what? The scene that really got me is when he goes into the office and he puts his feet up and he's so obviously wearing a pair of 1460s. Mm. Like he obvi- like you can see by the yellow stitching and just the outline of them that you're like, he's got a pair of fucking docks on. Like he, yeah. he knows about those oil, oil and grease resistant soles. Mm. Like... Do you think the boys' outfit or in general style? Do you think that was Matrix influenced? Well, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because the whole black leather jacket thing is very much an American thing, I think. But the long jacket, I think, was very popular after the Matrix and early noughties. Well, mid noughties, Matrix ninety nine. It makes sense, yeah, doesn't it? Exactly. It was that um, was like techno goth kind of era, wasn't it? And these guys, apart from the female, they don't seem like techno goths, although the. F- Frenchy does have those goggles on him. Well, he has the steampunk goggles, but again, that like techno, that like um, steampunk kind of rave goth thing is distinctly German, really. Mm. Like it's very much a German. Like I mean, we were talking about that club in Berlin that you have to Berlin, 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 Berlin. Extra phlegm to pronounce it correctly. Berlin. Yeah, <laughs> that club in Berlin that you yeah, have yeah. to look that way to get into, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, they looked. He looked natty. He looked fucking natty. Mm. I don't know if you know what natty means. I've known a couple of different contexts. I'm wondering which one you're using it in. So natty is like a term that would have been used by like mods and punks in the 80s. Right. If you were like dressed up to the nines, like you had a, you know, a clear, like a pristine, well-ironed Ben Sherman, brand new Levi's, your docks were looking polished, your pork pie hat was brand new and didn't have any blood on it yet. Mm. You're looking a bit natty. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, and you still hear people of a certain generation be like, oh, you look natty, mate. Mm. I, th- I think we should bring it back. I think it's really cool. <laughs> you heard it here first. We're, bring- we're bringing back <laughs> we're natty. We're bringing back natty. But you have, to, you have to look natty, though. Do you know what I mean? You right. have to look a little bit natty. To- well, that's not going to be us then. So we, <laughs> so we don't have to worry about it, really. I don't remember the last time I spoke to someone who, was, who looked the way you described. Mm. And no, I don't mean the specific items. It's just that crisp in general. We just right. don't run in those circles. Because if we did, we probably wouldn't be hosting a podcast. Certainly not a comic book podcast. And certainly not one that was audio only. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the thing, though. There is an expectation now that podcasts are um, recorded. Yeah, our video, yeah. And it's like, have you guys never seen a radio? <laughs> yeah. You know what we're ripping off, right? Like, But like, if there's a podcast, I'm not watching whole podcasts in visual, like on YouTube and video. Like, I'm listening to them while doing other stuff. Yeah. I get why some do it, because, you know, essentially they want the clips. Like, they want to get the clips viral, best bits out there, and they just, you know, as someone who's had to edit visuals to clips, I get why you want to just be like, just have us on there, like, it's fine. But the best ones, like, best ones I listen to, like, a prime example, Mark Maron, his has always been the audio. Yeah. So, if he's doing it that way, let's just follow his suit. Well, I mean, honestly, mate... I don't want to be on camera. <laughs> no, neither do I. That's, that's... Like, neither of us are desirous of that. Once a bit more money's coming in and we could put that money towards our own aesthetic, then we'll consider video. What, you're just there in like a pimp hat <laughs> with a big feather? I was thinking more like um, 
just a, a clean pressed black suit like uh, Richie from the bear. Oh, yeah. Because I feel like that would be like my security blanket for putting myself on video on the internet. Just you need to be in a suit at all times. Exactly. I would like to be more often in a suit, I think. Yeah, it'd be cool. But I mean, not in this bloody weather. Like, I would have no. a strict no suits in the summer policy. But like, full reservoir dogs, black suit, kind of slightly off white shirt, black tie, not too skinny, skinny ties are for dickheads. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just... It's natty. See, I would have said that before, but, and this is the biggest tangent we're going to take <laughs> on the podcast, I've started getting into my experiment with other colors and kind of thing. Yeah. So back in the day, I would have been like black and white, classic, just stick with mm. it. Now I'm like, you know what? I know what color palette I am now, what works best for me. So I'll probably go with like maybe a brown suit, maybe like a, if you see me, you'd, you'd, you'd agree. I think that's like, yeah, that would work on brown, you. maybe like a, uh, olive green kind of one or olive something working with that cool. mm. I remember or navy I, was, I remember when i was younger i had like a suit that i had constructed from bits from charity shops and it was like a green cotton jack- jacket and then slightly green brown stay press trousers fucking coolest mm. thing i've ever owned um like that with like a pale blue shirt and a tie and a tr- oh mate it was great see now we've said it we will have to when if if we get to a point of doing like first videoed podcast <laughs> we have to be in those suits yeah, we just yeah, said yeah, absolutely for the inaugural the first episode yeah. when we get to it so back to the comic uh <laughs> you're really trying to make that a thing aren't you? i mean it is it, it work- <laughs> i mean it, it's a very serviceable phrase yeah. for for what we do yeah it'll be me saying it most of the time obviously um i did notice very early on as well that like in the first instance of meeting the character huey he immediately is playing off that that the level the 2006 level of casual homophobia at yes. the time. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can't even remember like specifically what he was saying, just kind of knowing it down. But it was that level where it's like I don't, I'm not like hating on anyone, but I just think, and you know that. Kind of, uh, I mean, he, he talked, he talked, he talked about not wanting to be around gay people for the risk of them like doing stuff to him. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, ugh. And now, again, very of its time, unfortunately, like, we should, like, you'd like to think we were better by that point as a society, but we were. We were. Like, it just was. No, the 90s and the noughties were, like, I think, I think, I think it's, I think we're doing a service here to our Gen Z listeners. Yeah, tell them how it was. By just reminding them, because they're, they're all starting to get super into 90s fashion at the moment. Yeah. Because 90s stuff has just become young vintage, right? 90s has just entered classic. Yeah, it's yeah, now yeah. long enough ago there was classic. And the 90s were funky fresh, man. Like the 90, we had There was good music going about. The getting was good. Labour government. Everyone had a few quid in their fucking pocket. You could buy a council house for 15 grand. Mm. The 90s were a good time, but my fucking God, were they homophobic. Like yeah. the levels of casual homophobia that you could hear in our school when we were like sixteen. Oh yeah, if a, wild. Get the word gay was used essentially for the word bad. Like it, it was, was the, it was interchangeable with the word bad. Yeah, absolutely. Point. Yeah, literally. And mm. like the idea of kids coming out as gay in school in the in the noughties, you just didn't see it. Whereas now nowadays, kids are like kids are super open about their sexual identities. Yes, from like thirteen. Whereas when we were in school, it was like the, yeah. the people that we went to school with that are now like, you know, happy and out and proud and gay were fucking firmly in the closet because everyone was such a homophobic piece of shit. Yeah. There's a great bit by a comedian, Patton Oswald, American comedian, mm. if anyone doesn't know. He has a great bit about her, which if you can find it, great. And it's essentially, it's him having a gay friend and his friend had a nephew who came out as gay as well. And the the friend being like, 
thirties, forties was like god like how how rough a time they had at, at, at their like growing up in the 80s and 90s they were like really overprotective of this gay nephew they were like if they have to go through the same shit that i went through like yeah. i will burn down the school if if there, anything happens like happened to me and then he's talking to the nephew one day he's like yeah how's it going to school and the nephew's like well there's a bit of an issue like i think we might be you know a bit homophobic of them and the cousin media like what did they do? Like, I, I will raise hell. What do they do? He's like, well, we want to have our own prom and they won't let us have the prom separate to the normal prom because they're scared that ours is going to be like better. over the top better. Kind of stuff. <laughs> and the cousin's just like, you're fine. <laughs> like, you do not worry. You're, you're going to be all right. It's so interesting though, because when I was a teenager in the noughties, we all super, like particularly when I was at uni, we all really romanticized the 60s, mm. right? And we were like, oh, the 60s looked so cool, man. Like, you know, the fashion was great. The music was great. And that was about 30, 40 years previous. Mm. And one of our tutors sat us down one day and he went, by the way, guys, you romanticized the 60s. I lived through the 60s. You realized that you couldn't marry your partner if you were of different races in mm. the 60s. And we were having race riots and Britain was only just coming out of austerity and there and there is this there is this predilection i think of all people to romanticize a historical period just before the one you were born in yeah and that is currently happening and it's when you see stuff like this that's from the 90s and noughties you go things are better yeah <laughs> I th- like i hate to say it because i'm from the 90s and the 90s were great but they weren't great i think to sum up the homophobia in the noughties i would sum up and i welcome anyone disagreeing with this like get other people's views yeah as someone who grew up in the noughties straight like yeah i i absolutely have no real experience of it yes but being from the outside what it appeared to be especially thinking now retroactively it was at the level where you you would still qualify yourself to be not homophobic. Yeah. But then you would make some naive, ignorant statement yes. about them. But it would always be with this kind of undertone of like, I'm fine with them doing whatever they're doing. Yes, yes. But yes, I will yes. still criticize and have these like false assumptions about them and everything like that. So it it sounds like on the bright side of a horrible situation already. But at least by that point there, we were going in the direction of homophobia is bad yeah. we just now have to pin down exactly what it is and what it isn't and we're still you know wrestling with mind, that today you you were in the working world and i was at university before gay marriage was legal in the uk like mm. and so this comic book comes from what four five years six years maybe before gay marriage was legalized yeah these were not enlightened times no. and um, that was by a conservative government who were yeah. just doing because like right we get it. It's overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly obvious Over, that I've you want leave, this. I've got to leave that in now. You've corrected yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. The fact that it was so supported, it was like, fine, we'll do it. It wasn't like a breakthrough. Well, it was for the people who could get yeah. married afterwards, but they only did it because everyone supported it by that point. Yeah. Well, there was a vocal enough minority who s- told the government that they needed it yeah. and made enough noise about it. I honestly think that actually gay marriage was part of what broke down a lot of people's homophobia. And actually, if you'd gone out and talked to people before gay marriage was legalized, a lot of people on the older side of the population would have been would have gotten really funny about it. Um, And so, yeah, when you when you see the quite blatant homophobia in this book, um, it's so reminiscent of the time it was written, particularly when you get into the teenage kicks 
So mm. we see, we see. So basically, the the boys are running um, surveillance on the teenage kicks. Yeah, they're in a brothel. They're having a right good old time, and a lot of for it, them, not for the sex workers. Well, yeah, certainly. But a lot of what they're doing is a bit queer. Um, mm. A lot of the male teenage kicks are, you know, having sexual interactions with each other, and one of the females is enjoying being a voyeur at a lesbian orgy mm. um and i think the undertone is that a lot of what makes that kind of behavior less permissible is the fact that it is queer and not straight sexual behavior that they're engaging in yeah and that comes into the blackmailing that happens to the team later yeah because in my head when i saw it i was like oh yeah it's awful because they're hurting all those sex workers and then that's kind of glossed over into the sense of well, no, it's because two of the blokes are jacking each other off. And you're yeah. like, oh, fuck, right, okay. Yeah, it does. This is where they're going with that. They use it as a plot point for, for what the sex workers are going through. They use that as a plot point to be like, oh, what they're doing, what you think initially is cocaine, is actually a drug version of the Compound V, which gives people like temporary superpowers. And unfortunately, the, the implication there is they need that just to survive. And there is that the harrowing panel of that woman sat on the toilet with her fingers covered in blood. Yeah. Implying that she's just been absolutely abused by somebody with superhuman strength. Yeah. And 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 yeah, that whole and and this is the thing when it when it comes down to like the heavy sexual themes in this. We've talked about this before where sexual assault and abuse is used as a plot device in storytelling. And my general line on it is that it's gratuitous and we can find other ways to to say these things about these characters. But mm. they've made it so central here that it doesn't work without it. But it is actually still pretty galling. It's the depiction is still gratuitous. And, yeah. I, and again, that is this is the comic that kind of this and another comic called Preacher uh, both got across Garth Ennis's style. Oh, uh, is the pretty preacher garth Ennis. yes i fucking love preacher preacher also actually takes place this is the same universe kind of retroactively there's a bit where preacher characters in this later on yeah no shit not in a big way like a cameo background cameo kind of thing i hope it's the irish bloke i think it is yeah cassidy cassidy cass was great yeah but the thing with garth Ennis is he is over the top gratuitous with the violence with just sex and sexual assault and everything and he's known for that, and rightly so, because he does it so much. Yeah. But when you actually read his stuff, if you stick through it, and you can, you can pursue through that stuff, and I'm not saying anyone has to, but if you can, you do then see these, like, richer written characters. And again, like I said before, is normally the men who are the richer characters. Although, oddly enough, in Preacher, he writes a great female character in that. Mm. And she is the... I unfortunately can't remember her name, which is a really bad sign of her, but she's the, and I can't remember the preacher's name either. I just know no. it's preacher, but she's the ex-girlfriend of the preacher character. Yeah. And the running thing there is she is extremely capable as much so as the yeah. preacher. Like she can fight, she can shoot. Like she's basically like a badass female character. Yeah. And the running thing in preacher in the comic is pre the preacher character keeps trying to get her out of the situations to protect her and she's like nah bro <laughs> no, but and she's angry at him because she's like stop trying to look after me i can look after myself yeah. and you're pissing me off by not letting me help you because yeah. i care about you and that's a running thing and i thought that actually and that was before this yeah that was like a really 
almost for the time enlightened view of like equal relationships yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that it wasn't a man had to constantly look out for her it was she was pissed off that he kept doing that and uh, no like i'd have to reread the comic to find out the kind of details of like whether he actually did save her or not but at least that being a running theme was kind of like an enlightened you know for the time and then you've got here where it's just the one female character is literally called the female and she doesn't right. talk so and you know the head of the cia is female but again she has shown very little respect and i think that's because she's a woman she's literally submissive to the main male character yeah like for no reason like you could take that out and it wouldn't really matter uh, at least at this stage i i assume later as well yeah i mean it didn't need to be there i think i think it was i think th- and again what Garth Ennis is doing there is he's using her as a way of telling us something about Billy. Yeah. He's, he, he, and you know, and, and, and like even, even the terms that he uses for sex, mm. he refers to sex as giving some, giving her a length. Yeah. Or taking a length. And that is an old kind of English expression. Yeah. I say old English. I don't mean like Beowulf old English. I mean like late 20th century. Yeah. British. Yeah. Expression. And so you know it kind of it gives us some insight into who he is and where he's from but it also paints him as a wow yeah no i earlier on i said he's not that misogynistic he's a fucking massive misogynist isn't he yes and but then and and i think and this is i think a credit to garth ennis when you see the flashbacks with him and uh his girlfriend Becky. becky um and i don't know if they do it in this or if they do it in the sequel prequel later dear becky which is a uh, another thing it's worth if you like the boys it's worth checking this out it's like a mini limited run later on but they have these flashbacks with butcher and uh becky and she is she in that she's written well but again she's written as kind of like calming him down like being good for him if that makes sense but they do still have a bit more of a formed relationship but again this thing was written like 2020 so i don't know if it's like his updated so you know, views or whatever something and and again something is happening here that i think is deeply heteronormative i don't know if you've ever heard that expression before yeah just like ev- like everything being like heterosexual relationships yeah so the kind of heteronormative ideal that women like the presence of a woman tempers a man's baser instincts yeah you see it with negan you're yep. seeing it here with billy where the loss of the female presence in their life, which is a calming presence, mm. um, then leads them to absolute psychop- psychopathy. And again, it's that idea that, oh, me- like we- a woman's function is to stop us all acting like animals, whereas actually we should be able to do that on our own. <laughs> do you know what I yeah, mean? You've, you've nailed it on that, uh, exactly. And also, she is, again, she is bridged for yeah. the character's motivation. Exactly. So one thing I did like, I thought you might like as well was the good use of facial expressions on the characters yeah i think a lot of the time they they got across like the horror and you know terror that was happening well they drew billy and huey very well but then i took an image of some frames i didn't even take an image of them but some of the profiles of the seven Mm. were real sloppy yeah but i think that was very that was in consistent with the style wasn't it and again, so something I want to get into here is I really liked the Britishness. Mm. I I like seeing British media, right? I like hearing British accents in things that I watch. I like hearing English accents in things that I watch. 
um i don't know there's there's, there's something about the patter of an english accent that it's familiar sings, it sings in my ears a little better but there are some moments where it's really off and really mm. like jarring to a british ear so for instance there is a mo and i i i, I took photographs of a couple of them just so i could keep them there is a moment where he says ways and means right right so they're talking about how we're gonna huey asked billy how they're gonna nerf these supers and he goes ways and means mm. that it's the wrong way around it's means and ways <laughs> right like that expression is there's means and ways yeah so that was a mistake made by someone who had known a lot of the british dialect but not the details of some some blanks of details yeah and then there's this other thing that i think um an american would think is over the top but actually, because like he's because in America, in America, tea is seen as being a little bit kind of camp and kitchen upper class, mm. right? It's kind of fancy. But he said, "Property monkey, not that shit with a fucking tampon string in it." You septics think is tea, yeah. And then the next panel is him Explaining. looking disgusted at a cup of tea with a little string hanging out of it. And the idea that like a big fucking nutty geezer would care that much about tea is nailed on, yeah. Like that. Like if 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 somebody like proper a proper brew, yeah. If somebody offered you, if I mean, I'm not super into tea, cuppa. Yeah, but if somebody <laughs> offered you a fucking brew, mm. and then it was like it had a little string on it, and you're like, that's not fucking tea, sunshine. Yeah. Like I want English breakfast tea and a chip mug with some fucking semi skimmed in it. All right. Yeah, and what's <laughs> funny as well is how much Britain and British stereotype goes on about tea. Yeah. If you go to any, if you ask anyone from any countries or cultures where tea is actually really important, like China or like India. the Middle East, or, yeah, they would say we're all doing it wrong. Well, yeah, no, 100%. Like the way we drink tea is... It's a British cup of tea. It's, it's very unique in itself. I once had a German turn around to me and said, do you realise that's what we give to children? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. That's what we give to children who aren't ready for proper hot drinks yet. But there's another thing he said, which is just so nailed on for the way that like this kind of character would speak. And I feel like, you know, um, Vinnie Jones mm. in Snatch and yeah. Lockstock. Yeah. 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 Nailed on to that. Like, yeah. I feel like they're, they're really trying to invoke that kind of very particular kind of London accent because he says Glock's or wanker's gun, son. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I could just hear Michael Caine or Vinnie Jones. I think I think Billy Butcher, now that you've mentioned it, I think he I think he is a um Vinnie Jones from those kind of roles. Yeah. He's that kind of uh not parody, but homage, maybe, I suppose. Yeah. Closer to it. But then there's a moment where he completely loses it. Um so Huey says, I mean, what's so bloody brilliant about spying on these Egypts? And they spell it E double E J I T S. Mm. That's Irish. Right. That is not something that a Scottish person would ever say. That is an Irish accent. Do you think that's from the writer being Northern Irish? Well, and, uh, but this is, but again, like, there, there, there is this massive synchronicity. We've talked about this on the podcast before. There's a huge relationship between the Scots and the Irish. Yeah. And so if he'd grown up in Northern Ireland, he would have, he would have been, like, familiar with Scottish dialect, and he never nails on Huey's dialect. Right. Huey, Huey kind of... He says I a lot, and he says jings, which is not really a thing you'd hear a Scottish person say. Jings I'd never heard outside of this country. I had to look it up. Yeah. Super popular in the very early 20th century. Right. Not used after. But again, there are these amazing examples in fiction of the Scottish accent and a Ouija accent, like a Glaswegian accent as mm. well, is a distinct accent, and he just doesn't have it. Mm. Like... 
even if they'd even if they'd have thrown in some Dinny Kens and Dusneys and it'd have called someone a wee Raj, like that would have been a bit on the nose, but I would have bought it more. Right. And so they're doing this thing and they're kind of weaving these British characters into this very American setting and it's cool and it's fun, but they didn't get Huey anywhere near right and it took me right out of it because he wasn't believably Scottish for me. Mm. Like he just wasn't believably Scottish. Yeah. I think this probably was aimed at an American audience. So I think Oh, undoubtedly. It it and whether intentional or not, I think it was like here's how you think they sound kind of thing. Even even with um with Butcher being so British, like he's more British. I don't know, maybe we hear it less being around it constantly. But he feels more British than actual British people. Yeah, and and yeah, absolutely. And like calling American septics. Yeah, I've never heard that before. Yanks, obviously, but that felt like a stretch of Cockney rhyming. It is, it is Cockney rhyming slang, but again, yeah. it's not one that is used a lot because septic it takes more syllables than just saying yanks. Yeah, and I think yanks for us as well is easier to remember. Like that is what we call Americans. They did nail the way that Cockney rhyming slang works. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So generally in Cockney rhyming slang, you will drop the word that actually rhymes with the one that you're rhyming with. Yeah. And so you know he's a bit from Arch. Uh, the ha- let's have a butchers was the first one I. Yeah, which is a butchers used. hook, which is a look. Yeah, exactly. He's a butchers. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and so, and, and again, you know, a lot of that Cockney rhyme and slang has made its way into general British parlance, and a lot of people use it without even knowing where it's from. Mm, yeah. Um, and the ones that everyone, you know, clings onto, the old apples and pears, that you, you don't really hear them, but like a mm. butcher's hook, you would hear really commonly in British parlance, somebody say, oh, she's a butcher's. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure I use it. Yeah, we've used it, 100%. Yeah, and so, and so they, they, yeah, they kind of nail him on, but they just don't nail Huey down. And it really bothered me. It really took me out of it because it's like they made such a point of him being Scottish and from being from Glasgow as well, mm. which, you know, is one of the more prominent Scottish accents. Yeah, There's a part later on in the series going past well, what we're talking about, but where he goes back to Scotland and him talking with other Scottish people. It's just that like with all the characters, which is a yeah. bit off. The problem with that point, if anyone's thinking of reading this, if they haven't, when he goes back to Scotland, I feel like this is a bit of like a warning if anyone's tempted by looking at it. Um, when he goes back to Scotland, it turns out one of his friend, one of his friends back home is essentially transgender. And oh no. Do they not deal with it well? Yes and no. And I'm, <laughs> I want to I wanna explain it because, again, if someone does go on to read it on our recommendation, yeah. potentially, I want to kind of prepare like this is probably, uh, uh, this is the most egregious thing that you don't see in the first six issues. Right, okay. Um, and what happens is he goes back and he ba- he meets he meets up with a friend who he doesn't recognize because since he's been away, this friend has transitioned. Yeah, and the depiction of them, like visually, is unfortunately it's literally the the stereotypical like big muscled man in a dress Ugh. kind of thing with the makeup, which is cool. Well, it it exists. It's fine like, to be that human yeah, being, exactly. But it, it feels like that was of the time of thinking that's what everyone who was transgender was like at the time. Here's the other thing, though, which I feel to mention as well. He's depicted as a great person. Like, right, great okay. friend, like, literally, like, risks his life for Huey, risks her life for Huey, sorry. Yeah. I think that shit, like, at the time. They talk about literally, like, I think at the time they are pre-op, and I think they're literally talking about, like, getting the operation or something. And again, that was a big part of the conversation that used to happen about transgender people. 
was, oh, are you pre-op or post-op? And everyone was really fixated on their fucking genitals. Yeah. Whereas I feel like these days, the conversation is more about how people identify. Yeah, that's why we've got the extra, the additional, um, not labels, but like identifications. And Yeah, there, we, there, are, there are a bunch more pronouns in common parlance now. And, you know, mm. and um, this is the thing coming back to said Garth Ennis, like he does all this shit that, especially by these days, would be considered bad, like yeah. depictions of characters uh, or like presentations of characters. Yeah. But then he sometimes he writes them really well like and not not true to the actual ex- lived in experience of transgender people but he makes them like stereotypically good characters like good I mean, friends and people who you know like are supporting the good guys and doing good things and again not to harp too much on about the 90s and noughties but this was written in a liminal space in time whereby there would have been a the language around trans- transgender people absolutely would have existed and would have been known to transgender people yeah but the terms that most people in britain would have been using for transgender people at the time and the terms that were thrown about and considered very normal Mm. are terms that would now be considered slurs exactly do you know what i mean like i'm not going to use any of them yeah but it would have it would have yeah it would have been super common for people without even thinking that there was anything wrong with what they were saying to use a yeah. slur to refer to as a transgender person because that was literally the only reference point they had for them. Yeah, and I think for all we criticise the noughties, I think a large aspect of it at that time, and still is today to, to an extent, it was a lot of well-meaning people, well-intentioned people, not having the right information mm. to actually, to not be offensive or to, you know, I think there was an element of people trying, there were definitely a lot of people intentionally being offensive, like a hundred percent, like that's not to discredit or sweep down to the rug, but there was a growing, like some people were trying and they, but they hadn't actually made the effort to, or access the education to know what they were talking about. You would hear people say, oh, she's all right for a dot, dot, dot. Yeah, exactly. Insert racial or um, queer slur here, right? Um, And yeah, people would be like, well, I don't mind what anyone does, but yeah, as you have said, yeah, no, it was just different time, wasn't it? The most common one, I think, in Britain was whenever anyone talked about liking the band Queen and it would always like, oh yeah, Freddie Mercury was really good. Yeah, I don't mind. Like, it was like, yeah, he's great for a blank. Like, there was always a qualifier in there. Or Elton John. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know he's a, but he's a fucking great singer, though, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. And it would be like people justifying consuming queer media as a straight person by saying, well, I know he's, you know, but I still, I like Rocketman. And I think that literally came out of the fear that if they just said, I love Elton John or I love Freddie Mercury, that someone else would go, oh, does that, you mean, you're, fucking... does that mean you're gay then? And they'd yeah, be like, yeah. no, no. Like, yeah, that was... They wouldn't say, does that mean you're gay then? They'd be like... Yeah, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like that's what would happen. Isn't that it? was the ignorance at the time. Um. <laughs> so I, again, I thought that was important to mention, but um, there's a lot more in the comic that I think we've addressed all like the important stuff that would be we'd be remiss not to mention. So now we can get into the story, which is actually really strong and makes a lot of sense. I was going to say with regards to the facial expressions. Yep. <laughs> that no, that uh, comes back around to um, uh, Billy Butcher. A lot of his ones are kind of blank or like yeah. blank, but I feel like that is an intentional like hiding the darkness just beneath kind of thing. Yeah. Like he's never like open or that he has some small moments of vulnerability with Huey only. Yeah, and that's explained later why that is. But most of the time, he's extremely guarded, extremely like presenting this face to everyone else kind of thing and again i think the thing with his relationship with huey is that huey is not somebody he would have fucked with 
before his girlfriend got killed. But he, but he, he knows where his darkness came from. And he sees in Huey the potential for another him. And I think what, you, what I got from reading the synopsises of the later parts of the run is that Huey does become a fucking animal. <laughs> yes. And like, to be fair, one thing that is revealed later on, and they do touch on it a little bit here, um, very briefly, but it gets explored a lot more later on, is that the reason, there's two kind of reasons the bullies are like drawn to Huey. One is he sees a bit of himself in the shared disdain for superheroes and everything but the other is that he sees the good in huey that's not in him and where that especially comes from is the fact that um billy had had a younger brother Uh... and i won't get into like what's happened there like because that's revealed but essentially he sees his younger brother in huey yeah and it but and not just his younger brother but someone who was better than him and it kind of gets across later on that it's not just going to Huey because he was someone who they would do the same stuff together, but he was also looking at Huey as someone who might actually be a voice of reason to him. And that's all, to, to Garth Ennis' credit, that's really subtly well done during the, uh, as I remember from my first read, during the run. Like, it, it becomes evident that Huey was Billy's kind of um, safeguard for himself a little yes. bit. Yes. So what I really want to get onto now is move away from the boys a little bit mm-hmm. and onto the seven. And right. what I've realized is that we're walking away from one big old set of fucking sexual politics and sexual abuse straight into yet more of it. Into the absolute worst of the worst. Yeah. So basically the seven is set up as being like the Justice League or the Avengers. Yeah. More and... Justice League because it seems to be more um, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, the Trinity yeah. and everything. So the character who's portrayed as being kind of the Superman character. Yep. Um, Homelander. Homelander. They invite a new superhero in to replace one of their number. She comes from like the kind of Christian right. And the Christian yeah. right is all linked up with a one band of the young superheroes. Think like the Young Farmers Association, if you're British, Young Republicans NRA, mm. if you're American. But like a Teen Titans version of them. Yeah. So she walks in and she says, oh, I'm really, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be here for very long. And he says, well, you will be. And then it cuts to a panel of his bare ass, implying that he's got his cock out. And he said, if you suck it. Yeah. And then she looks for support from all the other heroes and they all whip their fucking cocks out as well. Yeah. It's proper grim. Yes. And you are, it's, it's, at least it's played in a way where it's meant to be a awful experience. And yeah. One of the few parts of the comic that you could say is actually not aged well, but is more relevant these days is uh, it reminded me of the whole Weinstein scandal. Yeah. And that was very much the, unfortunately, the really seedy casting couch element of yes. the Hollywood scene and everything, which which was probably happening at this time, but really only probably came to light publicly with the whole Me Too movement. So that part is actually like more relevant today. Than it was in 2006 yeah fucking it. well yeah isn't it just but i suppose the thing is that it's more relevant today because it's spoken about today but actually oh it was, sh- it was happening at the time for sure well, i mean a lot of the transgressions that got talked about during the me too movement were ones that happened in the noughties weren't they like yep. it's you know a bunch of really prominent female actresses came out and said that they didn't get roles that they shouldn't have gotten because they refused to do things or they did things that they felt pressured into because for the roles that they got you know mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was harrowing. 
Yeah. And I think the fact that they then cut to her vom like covered in like, you know, vomit and makeup in the toilets. And then she meets the other female super and she's just doing her makeup, smoking a cig. Just like, fuck off. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, or like she's so jaded because let's face it, she's probably already paid her dues in that regard. Yeah. And that does itself become a big plot point later on as well. Yeah. But yeah. And they are a, a good kind of plotting of the story. They're laying this subtle groundwork now for later. And again, played off the same way in the in uh, Watchmen, mm. where the, the mother of the per- the mother of the person that we see. Silk the- Spectre, I think her name yeah, is. Yeah. The, well, yeah, because she takes on her mum's mantle, doesn't she? Yeah. Um, the comedian tries to sexually assault her and then we find out later that obviously the same thing happened to her mum by the same bloke. I think, at least in the Watchmen film, I'm not sure about the comic, I think it only happened to the mother because the reveal in the Watchmen yeah. is that the comedian, uh, for anyone, spoilers, the comedian is revealed to be the, the newer spilt Silk Spectre's dad. And he's that's aware never of made explicit in the comic book, and he tries it on with her. Right, I I could remember from the comic, but I just remember that in the film. I could remember if that was a, a change in the film or not. But yeah, it's a step especially appropriate for showing the imbalance of power that that superheroes would have if they existed. Like, if there's no kind of control on like good people getting superpowers, for as much as that could be a thing in real life. This is probably what would happen to an extent. Like this and obviously the violence as well. And speaking about how people get powers, I love the way that this addresses comic book lore by mm. saying all those stories of getting beamed up or bitten by a spider or whatever, however they got their powers are largely apocryphal. Yeah. And actually they all just got their hands on a big dose of this shit and that's how they became super, right? Yeah. Um, And it kind of... I don't know, it kind of, it just cuts through a lot of the superhero shenanigans as this yeah, in a really yeah. lovely, elegant way. And it kind of just lets you get right into the nitty gritty of this actually quite compelling story. Like yeah. for, for all of its faults and for everything that hasn't aged well and for everything that doesn't really sit well with our current like... Sensibilities. Sensibilities and conception of the world. Mm. It is quite a well-told story. Again, that's why I keep coming back to with Garth Ennis. Like I've read a few of his bigger titles and there is that is my kind of constant theme. It's like if you can get through the the gratuitous violence and sex and sexual assault and everything like that, there is good writing underneath it all. Yeah. And you just you have to be either okay with it or at the very least not be as affected by it as others might be to get to that writing underneath. And I think it's interesting because I think because we live in an age of reimaginings and retellings and reboots i suppose is the word for it we kind of live in an age of revisionist history Mm. where a lot of our stories are being retold and sanitized in a way that brings them up to date with current sensibilities whereas when you actually go to that primary source material you see it presented as it was at the time and part of Mm. me thinks oh it's really great that these stories are being monetized and sanitized to be more reflective of our current values but also i think like this story is what it is and so seeing it as it exists i mean it's only 17 years old and we're, yeah. talk- and we're talking about it as if it came from a different era but it kind of did i mean civilization moves so fast now that it essentially did like we've just had long conversation about how different culturally we were regards to specific issues yeah fuck yeah and i suppose this this was written kind of i know the internet was invented in the 90s but after this was written around the time that the mass internet started yeah. like youtube was a year old when this was written yeah um 
Twitter, I don't think even existed yet. No, Facebook or Twitter, not like MySpace probably would have been, if if at all, it would have been MySpace. But we certainly didn't have the internet in our pockets, and we certainly weren't. Yeah. And and it was the nerds who were spending a lot of time on the internet. Now it's everyone. Yeah. And so this kind of does come from a different time. Like I think the mass internet has caused a big renaissance in human culture, for better or for worse. Yeah. Um. And so I kind of look at this and go okay, it's really cool that they've made a TV show and they've kind of sanitized out some of the more egregious elements. Mm. But actually, this primary source material is interesting as a historiographical document. Or is it, yeah. it's, it's, it's now a historical piece, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a snapshot of what these adult comics were like at the time, like, yeah. for sure. And it's, it's absolutely influenced culture going forward. Like, again, like we said, Watchmen might have been the first, but this is also one of the pivotal superhero subversions with how big the superhero genre became in mainstream with the films and you know tv shows and cartoons um even more so than it was at the time it made sense that naturally they would eventually do a boy the boys adaptation and luckily they've done a really good job of it Mm. i would say if you don't like this if you've listened to this and you don't like some of the more explicit violence and sexual assault and everything like that the tv show is a better way to go because it's more sanitized but it retains the spirit and the the themes and the criticisms and it it does a lot of the stuff without having to do as much of the shock factor of the comic because i think the other thing that we've not really talked about here is that this is quite a succinct critique of corporate culture yes and it does very good job of that like immediately after starlight has had her unfortunate essentially a sexual assault essentially after she's been through that, they're immediately then trying to sexualize her her presentation. Oh, they because change, they cut Yeah, the... they change her costume immediately. And again, in the TV show, that's done a lot more in-depth as a theme, like as a yeah. message, and it's a bit back and forth, whereas this, it just kind of does it. Well, and... he just walks up to her with a Sharpie and says, we've had some ideas for adjusting your costume, and he just cuts a diamond over where a cleavage would be. Yeah. Fuck, right, okay. And considering what she's just been through, that's even more like, oh, God. And, like, and one of the superheroes is making a blowjob gesture at her yeah. in, a bo- in a board meeting. But again, if you think about this in the context of a critique of corporate America and the idea that these awful people in the Seven are being heavily propped up by the corporations, which is explicitly stated. Yeah. And then you think about that within the context of what was actually happening at the highest levels of corporate America at the time me too me too movement being a great fucking example um this is a very succinct critique of what was actually going on in american culture Mm. like systemic misogyny and sexual violence at the highest levels yeah and i think a great bit of writing here which we see in these in these issues is homelander um essentially punishing a train for what he did in the meeting so that becomes like a really fucked up display as you say of like real world corporate culture because he's fine with the actual assaults happening behind the scenes but as soon as you play up about it in a official business meeting that's like that's too much he literally says don't do it in front of the money exactly there yeah. is exact words you don't do that shit is playtime's over you don't do it mm. in front of the money uh, but and it's not even just a hey don't do that it's he literally beats the shit out of a train he's like i will I, like i will be as abusive to you as we were to Starlight. Like, I will literally fuck you it's up. It's indiscriminate, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And that portrays Homelander as, like, being, like, the top guy, like, the the big boss kind of He's thing. He's the big dog. Exactly, And, yeah. um, you know, Billy goes quite deeply into that. All of these groups have a big dog who's in charge and who they all need. Yeah. 
when he's trying to work out which one of the teenage kicks is going to get kicked out, he's like, well, it was obviously going to be that one. And he yeah. gives all the reasons why everyone else was so important to their organization, if you want to mm. call it that. I, um, I do like Starlight, like, gets a lot better, like, character writing and depiction, yeah. like, as it goes on through the series. Um, it's unfortunate that it is she, is she quite a well-rounded character then? Throughout she the is, yeah. Like, she is not the helpless, like, was it the helpless um, love interest who Huey has to save or anything. Like, they, they have a really interesting relationship. Oh, yeah, because they meet, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> and that, so do they explore that? It becomes a, a big part That's going cool. forward, yeah. But she is depicted as, like, she becomes strong through the things that have happened to her. But again, unfortunately, and I want to get across that like that in itself is as an unfortunate Super common, up, isn't it? common trope in, in a lot of fiction. Daenerys Targaryen. Yeah, like women, female characters being put through this awful shit that like rarely, if ever, happens to male characters. And that becomes the go-to writers like, hmm, how do I go put her through struggle? It's like just the same button every time like yeah. of this kind of shit. So unfortunately, yeah, it starts off with that, but at least she is written as a much better character going forward. Again, done a lot better in the TV show. Like they they handle it a lot better there as well. Um, the other character we haven't mentioned that again he isn't got much in this, but it's the character MM. He, yeah, he plays cool. as like the no nonsense but approachable. You know, nice, but he's like the what is it? He's like the check to billy like billy knows he needs someone who can actually like manage the psychopaths under him which and he makes that very that, yeah. that's made explicit isn't it i like that a lot of these kind of character dynamics are made explicit without too much expositional content yeah like one thing i will say for it even though some of the dialects aren't nailed down the dialogue is pretty good. Yes, never felt forced or... Well, I mean, obviously, yeah, again, because of dialect, but never felt forced or unnatural or anything. Yeah, but even... but So Huey's dialect wasn't bad, it just wasn't there. Like, he spoke in a pretty generic American dialect with a mm. few little bits of not actual Scottishness peppered through. Yeah. Billy has a fairly distinct and strong kind of London dialect, which is actually pretty nailed on for the most part. Yeah. But the dialogue feels organic. Yeah. Mostly when Billy's talking. Like Billy, I believe Billy, even though he's quite, um, he's a bit of a kind of, he's almost played for comedy in a way. At points, yeah. It's a, it's a pastiche, isn't it? Yeah. But he's quite believable. And again, his interactions with Huey are actually really sincere. Mm. It's pretty fucking cool at times. Like it is pretty cool. There is a really good backstory for MM, which comes in like further on, which yeah. I just want to touch on here because it, it, it comes into the whole, the, the, sub meaning subplot about corporate power and everything yeah. which does become like a big running point throughout the throughout the series so mm with i don't want to give too much away but it kind of explains his nickname which mm stands for mother's milk yes um and without getting too much basically he is a child him and his family are exposed to this compound v stuff right right and his dad i think either is a lawyer or literally becomes a lawyer to try and basically get revenge like you know legally yeah. within the courts of this company i think it's something america vout vout american or vort american that he mentions them yeah yeah so his dad literally spends decades of his life like trying to win these courts these court cases and like loses goes back re like tries yeah. to build another argument goes back again loses again like he's dedicating his life and almost like wasting away trying to do all this yeah. to the point and mm as a kid is like watching his dad like struggle over and over again trying to reclaim just even a bit of like 
compensation yeah. like from this company and eventually he's successful he wins in court and they you know proves beyond a shadow of doubt that they've done this thing to possibly his family maybe even his community i can't remember specifically but then yeah he wins in court and you know mm as a kid he's like yes finally you did it dad yes and then he says he looked over the american lawyers who had just lost this case this huge case and the lawyers literally like looked at each other and went Ah, you win some, you lose some, and then just walked out like no issue. And that was when yeah. that, yeah, that was when MM was like, "Oh shit, this doesn't matter to them." And then like later, funny how the amount of compensation was like a drop of their like annual profits. Like it didn't matter to them at all. Same as that Chip Zdarsky comic we wrote on a very different scale. <laughs> yes, yes, but yeah. So that I thought again was is worth mentioning here because again, it's another great backstory. Who published this? So that's quite interesting. So it, it, I did have it down. I wasn't sure if I was actually going to mention it or not. The first six issues were actually picked up, um, published by Wildstorm, who I believe, I will double check this, I'm almost certain were a subsidiary of DC Comics. (laughs) Isn't it great? Because who published um, the Chip Zdarsky one that I like? That was Image. Right, okay. And they're a little bit less corporate. Yeah, their Image are like the third, the biggest third party. But yeah, this was, it was published by dc comics but only for the six issues we read it was then cancelled after six issues and it was then picked up by dynamite entertainment who were a big third at the time and obviously this you know this comic being well-renowned established dynamite even further as like a successful third party so yeah it started dc but it was pretty much independent you know after the six issues because i think dc were like we don't want to be associated with what you've done and what you might be about to do in this title so i assume i I always find this really funny um and it reminds me of a thing that happened in the uk a few years ago so there's a tv show called the x factor um americans had a version of it pop idol pop stars whatever you want to have animal like a, a panel talent show and there was this thing in britain called the christmas number one which was our music charts, they would announce a number one on Christmas Day and it was a big deal to get the Christmas number one. And for a long time, the X Factor had always timed their releases so that they got the Christmas number one every single year. Are you talking about 2008? I am talking about 2008. <laughs> so in 2008, um, a mass movement of people on, I believe, MySpace or just somewhere on the internet. Bebo at the time, Bebo, maybe, maybe. Maybe Facebook. Decided that that wasn't going to happen that year and that they were going to rage against the machine and get a song from like 91 by rage uh the biggest one killing in the name killing of. in the name of up to the number one as a big fuck you i won't do what you tell me yeah absolutely um the problem with that is they were raging against the wrong machine oh the same machine yeah um sony who owned joe Ma- joe mckeldry's Ma- something like that joe yeah. mckeldry yeah sony who put out his single also owned the record label that Rage Against the Machine was signed to. Yeah. So they were just like, they were just getting twice the money, baby. Like, they didn't care. Yeah. At best, it was more of a hollow, not hollow, but like, it was more of a cultural thing than a actual, like, financial revolution yeah. of it all. It was more like a, a taste thing. It was like, we don't like this music, we want this music. Yeah. So like, but again, it's that thing, isn't it, where this is like super overtly anti-corporate it's it's corporate approved um yeah dissenting corporate approved revolution yeah and it's just wild isn't it like i I never know how i feel about that kind of stuff um i mean don't get me started on protest laws in the uk at the moment because i will vomit 
I will just say that I at least appreciate it because I went to the Rage Against Machine free show they did in Finsbury Park in celebration of winning did the number you? one. So, was it yeah. good? Yeah, it was great. I, I love the band. So. Was Tom Morello super on that day as well? He's always on. He's great. Yeah, he is a good guitar player, isn't he? So I think we've covered all the biggest points of the boys, unless there was anything I could, else. I mean, to be honest with you, mate, I could talk about this one for hours because I found it so interesting. It, it, there's a lot to get into. And there's I, a lot I, of depth, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. And I th- again, that's I keep saying this, and I think that is because my ultimate kind of succinct take is if you can get past or dismiss the egregiously over-the-top, you know, extreme uh, extreme themes that are explicitly displayed... Trying to go around the long way around of saying if you can handle the explicit violence, the explicit sex, and the sexual assault, and the terms for people that are not yeah. used today anymore, and everything like that, if you can get past that, there is solid, good writing underneath that is is compelling. I mean, I think it's kind of unfortunate on some level that we felt the need to spend so much of the time that we, you know, the the finite amount of time that we have to do this mm. talking about where this sits culturally and kind of changing cultures and that stuff yeah when there's so much richness and depth and so many great themes in the story to get into but i suppose thus is the the issue that's inherent with dealing with something that is a little bit older yeah is that actually as you say culture is changing so quickly at the moment that something as recent as being what like 2006 to 2023 so that's Mm. yeah like 17 years um is very outdated now. Yeah. And I think that's a testament to how far we've come and how far we are coming. Yes. Um, e- even in our sensibilities, if not in these things actually happening in the real world. But yeah, it's it's a shame that something as good as this is overshadowed by just issues inherent when, with when it was written. Yeah. Because really, I don't think Garth Ennis was trying to promote this stuff. I think he was using it to shock people. Yeah. And again, that's, I, that's it's what I keep saying. Is he's a writer who uses shocking imagery and and writing to just in in hand with his stories about those themes and i think maybe maybe it's why he's so known is because he did unashamedly use them and again you can i think you can filter there's a difference between um there's a difference between the gratuitous use of sex and violence and then the things that are viewed differently today how they were before like you could do as much sex and violence in a comic today there are ones who that do it yeah but that's separate from the very of its time 2006 comic that is and luckily i mean not to peek behind the curtain but one of the reasons we're doing this now is because this will tie in with a tv show coming out which is a spin-off from the boys tv show called gen v oh i didn't actually realize what we were doing yeah, i don't I mean, have my finger on the pulse normally it, do- it normally doesn't come up but the only reason i'm mentioning it now is because there's then going to be another series of the boys so when yeah. that comes out we'll do the next volume for that so was was going back to your point is we will do more of it and yeah. maybe in the next episode we we won't have to talk as much about because we can just refer comic. back and then dig exactly. into it if cool. you want to hear us condemning the, the use <laughs> of this language go to the, this first episode. But also we do we do it here as well. <laughs> and there'll be like a different intro and stuff and it'll be fun retro experience for everyone. Exactly. But I'm, I'm interested to see what you think of the story going on and yeah. we'll, we'll probably get through it. I mean, if we do this podcast long enough, there'll be enough TV shows of this universe coming out. We might get the out. whole way through it. We might get through all of them. So cool. uh, looking forward to it. So thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to tell us why we're massive homophobes, you can go to comicliterate.gmail.com. 
Um, only rude emails, please. That's the only ones we read. I mean, to be honest, if you want to call us anything, I think we'd be we'd appreciate the <laughs> yeah, just, just the thought just, and attention you've gone to. We just want to hear from you. Um, if you want to leave us a review, just do so wherever you get your podcasts. Um, YouTube, there's always shorts. They're always fun. And TikTok, they seem to do better there for some reason. But And we don't question the algorithm gods. We just let it be. Yeah, we just let TikTok do TikTok. Um, so thank you so much for listening and good night. Thank you. Goodbye.